0: before we start. Okay, Okay, I now have permission to start. My name is John Herbst. I'm the director of the Dino Patrizio Eurasia Center. I'd like to welcome you all today to the Atlantic Council. Uh, It is my pleasure to kick off this event. You know, the, the problem of human rights and major sporting events has been on the international agenda since at least the Berlin Olympics of 1936. And of course, we have the Rio Olympics less than three weeks away. So today we have a very nice opportunity to cast a spotlight on human rights abuses surrounding international sporting events. We saw it in Sochi in 2014, and we continue to, say, to see increasingly that these events are used by authoritarian governments essentially to give themselves uh, good PR. We have a host of experts who really know the subject. I can't claim to. We are delighted to host today an old friend of mine, Virginia Bennett from the State Department. She is currently the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, in the Democracy and Human Rights and Labor Bureau at the department. That is, of course, the bureau that since the late 70s has been keeping track on human rights problems around the world. The State Department remains, especially under Virginia's leadership, a major voice, if not the major voice, on this subject. Uh, For those watching our live stream I encourage you to use the hashtag foul play a good hashtag to follow the conversation and now Virginia over to you thanks so
1: much, John. good morning to everybody delighted to be here and special thanks to Atlantic Council and particularly the Dinu Petri juice Center. Center. Um, This event today, I really hope, is going to help us advance our conversation that we've begun to have um, on the question of how to return kind of the nobility of amateur sport in all its aspects to the major mega-sporting events that we have seen on the global stage and we have ahead of us. Um, We have an awful lot. I I have to say, you know, John referred to the experts on this. That is not me, to be very clear. That would be my very distinguished colleagues. Um, And I don't want to take time away from our discussion with them. But let me just say that from the standpoint of the United States, you know, we really feel like sport has this unparalleled power to inspire. And I'm a mom with a kid who talked her way onto the boys baseball team in sixth grade. She's a soccer player, a basketball player. She's taking up lacrosse. Anyway, my point is, is like we all get this, right? What we can do for the United States part in advancing a more meaningful conversation about what happens with the laborers who are building the stadiums, what happens with the you know, individuals resident in an area who are forcibly evicted, What happens with the labor supply chains making the uniforms, all of these aspects that extend to kind of burnishing and restoring the nobility of sport. I spent three years in Athens, and I have to tell you, you get really in touch with what sport means when you go back to the very origins of how You know, city-states used to sort of celebrate their athletes partly as a sign of, you know, don't attack us, but also just as a sign of who they are, putting their best foot forward. So from the State Department standpoint, we I wanted to make an unabashed um, sort of announcement that we have been taking place in kind of a nascent joint initiative, um, working with other governments and non-governmental organizations some of the trade union federations, sports governing bodies, and the corporate sponsors, um, some corporate sponsors, to to explore mechanisms for how to integrate in a more holistic and improved way human rights considerations into the production of these events. Um, This group is currently chaired by uh, former uh, President of Ireland and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, And what we're trying to do is really develop a framework that looks at uh, sort of the learning and legacy and accountability issues that we would rely on the UN guiding principles uh, on business and human rights as a point of departure and the ILO Declaration on Fundamental Principles and rights to Work And, and kind of trying to draw some lessons and figure out how we can apply those lessons to ensure a better disposition for future events. So we're going to have a gathering here in Washington in October to cross-pollinate. We're not sure exactly what is going to come out of this. We're doing quite a lot of in-depth conversing at the moment. But what our aim is is to level the playing field. So with that, I am going to um, turn it over to our colleagues to um, kick it off. And I'm hopeful that as we try to move from kind of commitments and principles into practice and applied lessons. And that this conversation today will help us do that. So thank you very much. And thanks. This is a great crowd to have here.
2: So with that. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Hi, good morning. Um in the spirit of athletic competition, all of the speakers today showed up hot and sweaty
4: to
5: uh, <laughs>
3: Uh, moderators always say they're delighted to be here, but in my case, hi, my name is Bobby Herman, I'm, uh, vice president at Freedom House, uh, moderators always say they're so happy to be there, and in this case, it's really true for me, because this, this brings together, um, two of my, my great passions, uh, sports and, and human rights, and, uh, I think I inherited both from my dad, who, uh, dad, dad went to nine consecutive, summer olympic games so i also i also got uh inculcated in the uh in the joys and also some of the big questions about these mega events um the intersection of politics as john mentioned the intersection of politics human rights and sports is nothing is nothing new Uh, i mentioned berlin uh, the so-called hitler olympics and i haven't seen the movie race yet but i'm told it's great Um, But in the past decade, what we've seen is uh, maybe a resurgent authoritarian regimes that are once again attempting to use the Olympics, the World Cup, Formula One, ice hockey world championships uh, to burnish their international reputations and to bolster their their legitimacy, Uh, often as we as we just heard often violating human rights uh, in the process interestingly at the same time democratic governments and citizens have become in, in some ways much more skeptical at least about the promised economic development this is happening mostly in the global north I think people think uh, people may know and David I don't know if you're getting credit for this but your hometown of Boston uh, where they voted basically they didn't want to uh, put in to uh, apply to, to host the uh, host the Olympics. And recent uh, corruption scandals involving FIFA, uh, systematic dro- uh, uh, doping uh, by, the, by the, the Russian government and some elite athletes have, I think, also cast a, a, a pall over, over some of these mega events, particularly uh, the Olympics. And yet, as Virginia said, we are inexorably, inevitably drawn into the artistry and the drama that is played out Um, uh, in these, in these competitions. So to help us uh, deepen our understanding of the dynamics that are taking place in many of these, uh, many of these countries that are, that are hosting uh, these events, we've uh, assembled an all-star panel. Uh, Let me just now, their, uh, their bios were distributed. So Um, I'm not just gonna, I'm just gonna say a quick word. Uh, On my immediate left is Minky Warden, she's Director of Global Initiatives for Human Rights Watch. Then we have uh, Sanjay Bering, who is the Director for Advocacy in Middle East and North Africa uh, at uh, Amnesty International, who told me he biked into work today, so special (laughs) kudos for you. uh, on our screen, we have uh, Pedro uh, Abramovay, who's the director of Latin America for the Open Society Foundations, and Pedro joins us live through the the wonders of modern technology from Rio, where yes. you'll be swimming in the two hundred meters and the and. And on the end, uh, my dear friend, uh, David Kramer, uh, who is the Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy at the McCain Institute for International Leadership, and also the my former boss at Freedom House. So um, here's the run of show. We've got, I've asked uh, our four panelists, uh, they're going to have five minutes, uh, and that's it. And then I'm going to pose one or two questions to them. I promise we'll, we'll keep that lively and move quickly so we can open it up to, the, to questions from the audience because we've got, I know, this is an interesting and exciting topic. So, I think, uh, Minky, you're hitting lead-off. Up to you.
6: Hi, good good morning, everyone. Um, I want to uh, give a special thank you to our friends at the Atlantic Council for hosting the event today um, and to Virginia for being here representing the State Department. I think, um, as we'll discuss this morning, The ball has been moved down the field in very significant ways um, since Human Rights Watch started doing work that was focused on mega sporting events and human rights. And let me just begin by explaining what is a mega sporting event. It's an event like the Olympics on the horizon a few days away. It's an event like the World Cup. Um, or also it can be an event like the Baku Games in Azerbaijan or the Formula One, also actually in Azerbaijan, and we can discuss that in more detail. Um, But a mega sporting event brings with it the possibility for mega human rights abuses. Mm. And let me explain how that is. Um, It is, uh, there is a very long lead time from the awarding of the games to the arrival of the games or the delivery of the games. And just on a personal note, I first became interested in this phenomenon when I was living and working in Hong Kong in the 1990s. Um, Deng Xiaoping bid to host the 2000 Olympic Games as part of China's effort to re-enter the international community after Tiananmen Square in 89 governments have long understood that this is a way to build soft power to burnish your image on the world stage to stand next to world leaders whether or not you deserve the right to do that Um, and in term on a personal note uh, when china won the right to host the olympics in 2001 part of their bid very interestingly was give us the games and we will improve human rights. Okay, so we have eight years to see how the Chinese government is going to do that. Um, Instead of the promised human rights improvements, instead of the promised press freedom, when 25,000 journalists arrived in Beijing in 2008, in August 2008, um, the great firewall was up. The internet firewall was up. Instead of the promised Uh, labor rights improvements, six migrant workers died building the bird's nest, a single stadium alone. Instead of um, property rights, a number of people were forced or bulldozed from their homes uh, to make way For the stadiums Uh, and civil society was not improved hu jia one of the great human rights activists in china was arrested and got three years in prison for testifying to the european parliament that human rights were not improving as if to prove the point Um, so i think we have seen the signature abuses that you get when you award a mega sporting event to a human rights abuser. We really had a replay, uh, and pardon the sports puns, I think you're gonna hear a lot of them this morning. We had a replay of these exact abuses in the run-up to the Sochi games, although Human Rights Watch warned the International Olympic Committee and other bodies that this was going to happen. Forced evictions without proper compensation, migrant labor abuses, building, fish stadium, and other venues. Um, uh, Crushing of civil society, environmentalists and others who got long jail terms for exposing the fact that the Sochi Olympics were not the great environmental games they were supposed to be. And of course, uh, we know journalists were harassed and detained. My favorite story from that is two Norwegian TV journalists were um, arrested And uh, harassed, and then told, Welcome to Sochi. And I think everyone will remember what happened with Russia passing an ugly anti gay law in the run up to the Games. That created a lot of uncertainty for athletes, for coaches, for fans. So this this um, gap between the aspirational words and the, the possibilities, the vision of sport as a, as a force for good is what we really need to close. We have to close that gap and we have to close it fast. Why? The Chinese government spent 40 billion dollars on the beijing olympics at the time everyone said that's it there's never going to be a more expensive mega sporting event but then the sochi games were 53 billion dollars And the Qatar World Cup is going to be a projected $200 billion. They're building building or reconstructing as many as a dozen stadiums. And Human Rights Watch did our first report on um, the uh, abuses in the construction sector in Qatar in 2012. Our cousins at Amnesty have just done a brilliant report which documented migrant labor abuses in the construction industry in Qatar, and I hope we'll hear more about that. This is a knowable thing. So if you have $200 billion worth of infrastructure, you are absolutely going to have $200 billion worth of human rights abuses if you do not put in place safeguards. So I, I, wanna say that this is a moment of great concern and crisis for world sport, crisis for other reasons including corruption and the lack of transparency, but it's something that the International Olympic Committee, FIFA and others, need to embrace as an opportunity to close that gap between the sort of motto of higher, faster, stronger and the and the ugly reality on the ground. And we can talk um, in the course of the day about what the, the concrete solutions are. These are knowable problems, they're anticipatable and they are preventable. So the challenge before us is can we prevent a large number of deaths for example for example in qatar between now and 2022 and i think we can
3: great thank you thank you Sunju? sure oh well,
4: on behalf of amnesty international and amnesty international USA, i want to say thank you to the atlantic council and to my uh, co-panelists for this opportunity to talk about these issues because mega sporting events are the place where uh, the world's wealthiest and most vulnerable intersect in ways that are far from ideal and and it can be quite painful for many hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, I have the privilege of representing Amnesty International USA uh, as our Advocacy Director on Middle East issues here in Washington, DC. I also have the privilege of representing our real experts on Qatar and many of the huge human rights violations that are happening there. Our researchers have put out uh, five reports along with the great reports put out by Human Rights Watch uh, over the past four years. Uh, Akash Prakash, James Lynch, Mustafa Kadri have all worked very hard on the ground talking to people uh, amidst uh, situations of, of great hardship and suffering. You know, Just one of many examples, uh, a, a Nepali laborer who, who told Amnesty International how their uh, employer in Qatar refused to let them go home after the Nepali earthquakes, even though they couldn't tell if their family was alive or dead. They had no way of contacting them. They wanted to go home. Under Qatari law, uh, the employer had every ability to block them from doing so. And this is just one of many, many examples. You know, the, the 2022 FIFA World Cup has brought into global focus the, the shocking conditions that are, that are extraordinarily routine. It, it's important to remember just how vast the scale uh, of the, the workforce situation is in Qatar. Over 90% of the total workforce in Qatar consists of foreign nationals and that's expected to reach a total of 2 million uh, workers and laborers within the next two years and these numbers have increased in a dramatic rate and they've definitely been tied directly into the construction spree around building the infrastructure for the 2022 World Cup. In the first five years since the country was awarded the World Cup uh, in 2010, the country's population has gone up by 40%. So this is a vast, vast spending spree, a vast construction exercise with huge numbers of people uh, directly impacted as a consequence. So the government of Qatar is spending hundreds of billions of dollars in this program. It goes beyond just stadiums, but also into the broader infrastructure of the country. Roads, tourism facilities, hotels, all of the things that that will enable people to arrive in Qatar and will play a role in the larger ambition of Qatar becoming a, a global hub for commerce and tourism. Now, the problem starts with Qatar's Kafala sponsorship system. Uh, Under that sponsorship system, foreign migrant workers are not able to change employers or leave Qatar without the permission of their current employer. Now, of course, in any situation where there's any kind of abuse, this becomes highly problematic. Even when an employer is not paying the employee, the employer could still block the employee from changing to jobs or leaving the country. It gets worse than this because foreign migrant workers are forbidden from forming or joining trade unions. And while Qatar does have labor laws which should offer some protection for workers historically, they're not enforced effectively. There's an an even more difficult level to this, which is that thousands of foreign migrant workers in domestic service roles are specifically excluded from even the meager protections set out historically under Qatar's poorly enforced labor law. These migrant workers, who are mainly women working in households, are exposed to even greater conditions of labor exploitation, up to and including some horrific accounts of sexual violence by their in-home employers. Now, to the government of Qatar's credit, they very recently announced new labor laws that will go into effect at the end of this year. I'll get into why those labor laws fall far short of what's needed. Um, But first, it's worth taking a look at the problem with some statistics from the Qatar National Research Fund, which did a survey in 2012 of some 1,000 low-income labor migrants. 90% of migrants in this survey said their employers possessed their passports, a violation of Qatari law. 20% said their salary was different than the salary they'd been promised prior to leaving their home country. 21% said they sometimes, rarely, or never received their salary on time. As documented by Amnesty International researchers, in the most extreme examples, foreign migrant workers became suicidal after being trapped without pay by employers in Qatar. They were forced to depend on charity from other Qatari citizens simply to eat. That's how bad the situation has gotten in Qatar, despite the government of Qatar's claims to the contrary. Against the the, the backdrop of these terrible conditions in Qatar, there there is the challenge of the families that have sent uh, members of their families to Qatar from Bangladesh, from Nepal, from India, from the Philippines. Oftentimes, they've incurred great debts through uh, recruiting networks that are uh, highly unethical, that promise one salary but don't deliver. And as a consequence, the families that have sent the laborers themselves uh, face a crushing amount of debt uh, that if they don't get the money and the remittances in time for, they may not be able to make the rent on their homes. They may find themselves in situations of homelessness. So there's a cascade of problems that result as a consequence of Qatar's abusive labor laws. Now, one positive step that the government of Qatar has taken is to require migrants to be paid directly through direct bank transfers, which make it easier for the government to track payments and ensure timely payment of wages. Of the roughly 1.7 million migrant workers in Qatar now, roughly 1.5 million are currently covered under that. So now there's still 200,000 that are not part of this direct tra- payment transfer system. But it's the broader second law that was announced that falls far short of what's needed in terms of this kafala sponsorship, sponsorship system. Um, the new law uh, takes the first step of changing a word. It replaces the word sponsor or kafala with recruiter. Um, so you know there's a cosmetic change there. Uh, it allows migrant workers to switch employers only after they've they've complete 5 years with the same employer or upon completion of a contractual period in 2-year temporary contracts in other words the best case scenario for a migrant worker facing abuse facing non-payment facing months of delayed payment even or squalid working conditions or a whole range of problems is that they have to stick it out for two years before they can change jobs. Now, while many migrant workers may want to leave the country uh, completely, uh, the reality is given the crushing debt payments that their families have, they came there and they need to earn in the Qatari economy in order to pay off the the debts that their families incurred by the recruiters back home in the the country of origin. So many many foreign migrant workers don't have the luxury of simply saying, I want to get out of here. They want to change jobs and find a more ethical employer. But under the new reforms, they're not necessarily able to do so for years. Now, the, the new reforms still also allow exit permits uh, and maintain the exit permit system, through which you need the permission of your employer to go back to your home country, which is an astounding requirement. But uh, if the employer objects to the exit of the employee, an exit permit, uh, petitions committee can meet to resolve it. Now remember, these are migrant workers who, any migrant worker who's willing to attempt to leave the country uh, despite the massive amount of debt that their families maintain, despite all the challenges, is not somebody who's going to have you know, wealth on hand, the, uh, a lawyer to represent them, to engage the government of Qatar, the Ministry of Labor, all of the resources you're going to need to challenge your employer. These are people in dire straits. So this, and then of course, lastly, domestic workers are completely excluded from these reforms and and from the labor law. So this gives you the the broad, big picture of the problems that remain in place today. FIFA, to its credit, has has acknowledged that it took years to bring forward uh, these human rights concerns, um, whereas before it would just sort of avoid the topic entirely. The government of Qatar, while putting forward some of these reforms, uh, has much further to go. and, And Amnesty International remains very concerned that some of the emphasis remains cosmetic given the sheer number of people who are who are at risk of abuse um, or are currently being abused uh, under the Qatari system. A, I also want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank the State Department for maintaining the government of Qatar in the trafficking in persons report on the Tier 2 watch list, which keeps the public pressure on and the spotlight on for these terrible worker, worker conditions and labor violations. But overall, much, much more needs to be done, uh, and that's where the global chorus and the global consensus needs to be focused on the government of Qatar so that they can't simply take this problem uh, of their e- extraordinary labor violations and, and human rights abuses and sweep that under the rug as they move closer to a 2022 exercise that could potentially be global PR at the expense of the, the suffering of so many hundreds of thousands who are working there to build the 22 World, 2022 World Cup.
3: Thank you. Great, thank you, Sanjeev. Pedro, let me come to you, if you can. Good, looks like you can hear me.
7: Thank you very much for the invitation. Can you hear me fine? Yes. There. Great. Um, so thank you very much for the Atlantic Council for, for this invitation and, and for the opportunity to talk about uh, this uh, mega event that's happening in my city in, I mean, uh, one month from now. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to... to Watch this process of mega events. I mean, Brazil won the jackpot of mega events, right? Mm-hmm. We had the Pan American Games in Rio in 2007, then the World Cup in 2014, and now the Olympics, right? Uh, uh, and so, and, and I had, uh, I would say, I was in a privileged position to watch how this operates because I was, uh, I worked for the government uh, for the whole uh, Lula period, so for, for eight years, uh, from 2003. To 2010, so I could see how exactly the influence of those mega events operate inside the government, then uh, from the civil society side, trying to get access to information about what was happening uh, and also exposing the human rights violations that that uh, were happening. uh, With that, Uh, I think the the, the first thing to, to you know, the conclusion that, that we can uh, reach looking at the mega events, at least uh, here in Brazil, but of course, it's reproducible in, in many other parts that we, as we just uh, have uh, listened to, uh, is those events are a factory of corruption and uh, inequality. It's that, that it's as simple as that, as something that, that we can uh, 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 take from this. Um, and it is, because it is a kind of... of Uh, supranational supranational, uh, uh, influence that is uh, put over governments that I've I've never seen anything like that in my eight years of government, uh, this kind of supranational influence. Nothing from the UN, nothing from uh, the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, nothing from no other, uh, uh, I would say, uh, external influence was so strong in defining priorities uh, budgetarian priorities uh, legislation legislative priorities than uh, the Olympics and and the World Cup and all this mega event this would you know be an excuse to fast things up to uh, over, uh, overcome audit process procedures and and any other and, and even to to uh, make people close eyes to human rights violations that would happen To so take a look of what is happening now in Rio, yeah, and we have to remember that Rio is a city that last year we had the police killing uh, more than 600 people in the state of Rio. I mean, this is half, it's more than half of the police killings in the U.S. with 300 million people. We're talking about 16 million people stayed in Rio. Only in the city of Rio, 300 people were killed by the police. In an increasing movement uh, that I'm sure this year will be much higher. Uh, The report that we have is much higher than last year. We are getting closer to the Olympics. The situation in the favelas are getting much worse in terms of violence and police violence uh, there. In terms of corruption, it was the kind of of, uh, public work that was done uh, uh, during this period was absolutely out of any control. I mean, the Maracanã Stadium, which is the big soccer stadium, was demolished and rebuilt three times just to attend the specifics, uh, 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 complaints or or demands from the different sports organs in the world. So that's uh, um, the evictions, the forced evictions that we could, that we we saw during this period that has, I mean, so all the legal procedures and the constitutional procedure were just put aside because we had to do it just for the World Cup. And the solution, what was the solution to do the kind of eviction is just, you know, uh, uh, ask the, the, the private and violent uh, militias to control the, the the process of removing people from where they live and putting in the, the new areas where they were forced to remove. This is the scenario that we are seeing, right? In a democratic country, open society, but the influence that was, uh, that we received from all these mega events was all to generate, again, inequality. And and uh, uh, corruption. There was no positive influence. No, never. There was an influence in a moment Mm. that we could, right? we have to do this positive thing because it is an external demand from the Olympics. Never. And and it's so. I mean, just to quote uh, uh, Justin Trudeau. I mean, it's 2016. How can we have a private uh, influence that is you know uh, a, a sport that is admired in the world that has that that doesn't include in in the agenda a positive agenda and a positive uh, 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 demand from governments as uh, those mega events. So we are one month from the the Games and clearly real is uh, more unequal and more uh, violent and more uh, and human rights are more violated now than they were uh, before we had uh, the Olympics.
3: Okay, thank you Pedro. David?
8: Bobby, thanks. And thanks to Atlantic Council, John, in particular Geisha Gonzalez, a former colleagues at Freedom House, for this idea. She shares the passion for human rights and sports. So, Geisha, thanks very much for pulling this together. And Virginia, thanks very much for joining us as well. And to all of you here, it's great to see. Um, you mentioned, Bobby, how Boston, people in Boston, um, basically put their foot down and said no to hosting the Olympics. As someone from Massachusetts, I thought that was great. For anyone who's been to Boston, you know how bad traffic is already without (laughs) having Olympics around. And, but the beauty of it was the people in the region were given the opportunity. They were given the, the voice and choice to decide whether to host these Olympics or not. That often is not the case when it comes to these kinds of mega sporting events. And if you look at the examples that my colleagues have have cited um, in Russia, in China, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Qatar, the the list is on and on, and the people living in those areas who get badly affected by them do not have the opportunity to say, you know what, we don't need this, we have enough problems as it is. There is the huge problem of corruption. Um, It's been talked about, uh, Minky talked about the numbers spent in in the Beijing Olympics, the Sochi Olympics, and so on, Qatar, It, it is for people within circles of power to benefit each other. The contracts for construction go to friends and cronies of the leaders. It's not like there are huge benefits to the populations in these countries, let alone in the affected cities and instead what you get are displacement, worker abuse rights, uh, worker rights abuses, um, all all sorts of problems that feed into the authoritarian nature of the host of of these events. Um, A lot has been said about some other countries. Bahrain, which has hosted the Formula One, um, is a country since 2011 that has engaged in a massive crackdown on human rights, and it has only been getting worse and worse including against people who protest against Bahrain's hosting of Formula One. In Azerbaijan, which has hosted the Euro Olympics, which no one had ever heard of until they hosted them last year, um, also just an opportunity for the Aliyev regime to tout itself and put its face forward, um, and it was a massive waste of, of money with frankly little of interest in terms of competition. The Sochi Olympics, um, $53 billion. Some estimates go even higher. Um, you now have all this construction and these, these stadium and uh, other things. What, what are they gonna be used for uh, a- after these events are over? And what happens to the people who were displaced in the process? Uh, how are they ever going to return to their homes? The, these are also um, events that are driven by terribly corrupt, oversight bodies, whether it's the International Olympic Committee or FIFA or those who oversee the Formula One. Remember that uh, Mr. Blatter, before he uh, left FIFA, gave himself and, what, four or five other top officials $80 million in bonuses for the wonderful job they were doing um it it, there is a sense of outrage that i think we should be expressing not just about the corruption and the human rights abuses that go into hosting these events but also with the officials who run these kinds of of, uh, sporting events too I, i worked in the state department at the time of the beijing olympics and i remember president bush indicated early on months ahead of the olympics that he planned to go it was a big deal to the chinese and what we failed to do in the Bush administration was to use his decision to go to Beijing as a way to leverage it to get some improvement and easing on the human rights situation. That, that was a failing on our part. It does indicate, however, that people who have these hopes that hosting these events will lead to an improvement in human rights, it is a false hope. There is no evidence to support it whatsoever because, frankly, leaders who go to these events are very disinclined to raise human rights concerns. They wanna watch sports. They don't wanna go and raise human rights concerns, raise the plight of political prisoners, raise issues of corruption. Instead, they're there to have a good time. And so I think leaders who would go to these events need to really step back and think about what they're doing and lending legitimacy to regimes that engage in human rights abuses, massive corruption in hosting these, and think twice before getting on the stage with the hosts of of authoritarian regimes. Uh, This is a huge problem that these leaders seek legitimacy, they do it through terribly corrupt means, and Western leaders should not be enablers and uh, uh, accomplices in these kinds of things. So let me stop there.
3: Great, David. Thank you. Um, I do want to leave. I know we've got a this is great standing room only crowd uh, for today. Um, so I do want to leave a lot of time for questions. Let me let me pose one general question to everybody, and then if, if there's time, I might ask uh, specifically to pick up on some of the things that you raised. But, um, David, picking up on on your point, um, should the emphasis of the of the international democracy and human rights community be to prevent these governments from hosting these events? Um, even if successful, that's probably a long-term undertaking. What can be done? Coming back to your point about Beijing, what can be done in the interim to use these events to leverage change, to bring more attention, and to hopefully have some impact on the ground, whether it's uh, whether it's at Qatar or or what we might have seen now in uh, it may a little bit too late for for Brazil, but not for the for the follow-on. So uh, let me, uh, David, let me start well, with you.
8: It seems like there should be a baseline. It seems to me that countries have to abide by uh, a a sense of of human rights. If North Korea applied to host the Olympics, everyone would say, that's ridiculous. North Korea is is the worst state in the world. What about Russia hosting the World Cup in 2018? Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, It it, it violates the human rights of its own people to say nothing of Ukrainians in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine. Um, That to me would be a disqualifier. I think we do probably need to come up with some sort of baseline conditions that would be necessary for countries to host these things. Um, And yet the problem is going to be there are fewer and fewer free, democratic countries that want to host them. They cost a lot of money, And, and the people in Boston put their foot down and said no. So then you go to authoritarian regimes that don't have to, or at least they don't think they have to listen to their people. And they say we'll be willing to put up the money for this. Um, so it's a vicious circle that I think we do need to work on breaking as much as possible.
3: Right. Pedro, let me go to you. And same same question about when, as David said, should there be baseline conditions? And what do we do though in the interim to use these mega events to publicize either the records of these governments on on human rights or raise related issues?
7: Sure, I, I think I think we should try to, to rebuild the logic of, of all this, right? So the point is, I, I don't think we can just say, let's not have the, the, the mega events or the World Cup or the Olympics. I think there is, of course, a positive energy from the world and, uh, uh, around those things. And, and, and we should take advantage of that instead of just... Uh, so, but the point would be, instead of asking countries to build eight new stadiums uh, as uh, something that give them score, to host uh, the, the Olympics. We should call them to so what is the country that can uh, do it without uh, putting new money and you know public money on that, right? Without building new cities and taking advantage, advantage of, of what we have. Because the new cities are, are a demand, right? We need to have this spectacular show with everything completely new. And this is absolutely not, not sustainable. Why can't we have conditions that are I don't know the Millennium, uh, the, the the sustainable development goals. How how the countries are going in the sustainable. This is like a UN. Every country signed on this. How the countries are going in the sustainable development goals in terms of transparency, uh, uh, sustainability, uh, poverty, uh, uh, or or even I mean killings. Uh, uh, this is this is one of the the the, the, the targets from the sustainable uh, uh, development goals. How, can, can't we use this influence to generate something positive that an inclusive society monitoring and, well, if the country don't, don't, don't meet, uh, doesn't meet this, uh, this criteria, we would just, you know, take them, uh, the, the, the event away as we do for everything else, but it's, it's exactly the opposite, right? If the country doesn't, uh, the country is not corrupt enough to build uh, uh, stadiums uh, in the, the speed that the, the committee wants, we'll take them away. From that, if the country doesn't have uh, uh, intellectual property uh, law that is completely abusive, for the period we'll take it away from you. We should try to 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 inverse, uh, the logic of it. And while we don't, I think of course denouncing it and showing the world that this is not a party of democracy of you know non frontiers is exactly the opposite, right? This is, as I said, it's it's it's. It, uh, the, the influence, uh, particularly on developing uh, countries, is really uh, monstrous, right? It's, it's, it's again, Brazil. Uh, uh, the, the corruption scandals that we're that we seeing now in Brazil—they were so embedded in the Olympics and in the World Cup, in the construction of all the infrastructure for that—and it was an excuse that we had the World Cup, that, that we could, you know, that we had to do it so fast, and that we had to do it uh, in the way that it was done that it's, it's a clear threat for, for uh, democracy in the way it is now. So I think we should point it out, but I don't think it would just, just let's avoid it. I think we should have a proposal on what is the positive influence that we could have from this event on, on different countries in the
3: world. Great. Right. Sanjeev, and then, and then Minky. Sure. You know, uh, there
4: ought to be a very clear and defined standard that uh, a country must reach before uh, being able to submit a bid for any of these events. Uh, and and uh, it's pretty clear that when standards are established for uh, other aspects of world sporting events, that countries and governments uh, strive to meet them. You know, I think it's the comedian John Oliver who did that, that bit on the FIFA courts and all of the, the crazy legal and other concessions that FIFA extracts from host countries, changes to the legal code, all kinds of stuff. You know, why, why aren't these concessions required for uh, basic decency and treatment of the workers whose sweat and sadly blood uh, is, is going to be in the cement of some of these stadiums uh, mm-hmm. that are being constructed in Qatar, for example, and elsewhere? Very clear, explicit standards that should be put forward and publicly put forward, not trapped within a cloistered uh, sports bureaucracy that then does its internal you know, uh, internal negotiations and then issues a press release to the rest of the world saying, yes, yes, we talked about this, check, 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 boxes checked. No, very clear, very public, which gives civil society the ability to weigh in before the fact and during, not just after in the critical campaigns that, that many of us have done. Thank you.
6: You know, um, I think everyone knows that uh, the International Olympic Committee, FIFA, and these other sports federations make sure that the details of the ice rinks or the swimming bubble are absolutely nailed down. They have assessments um, at designated moments straight through this sort of eight-year process. And I think where we are now is the biggest problem has been the gap between the promises and the reality on the ground. And it makes perfect sense to have human rights risk assessments, right? the This mega sporting event has a eight-year life cycle. You have human rights risk assessments at the beginning of the process. Um, we know now through Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, and um, uh, many other organizations, trade unions, research that if you award a mega sporting event to a government that has serious human rights abuses, and let's just say every government in the world has human rights abuses, including the United States, but where you, what our research has shown is that where you award or reward uh, government with a mega sporting event, if it doesn't have the rule of law, a functioning legal system Mm -hmm. where the local population can bring grievances, if it doesn't have a free press to expose corruption and other abuses, then you are going to exacerbate whatever the existing problem is. And we saw this in Beijing in 2008. We saw this in Sochi in 2014, Human Rights Watch did a report on migrant labor abuses. before. Russia was awarded the games and so of course we knew that there were going to be eight years of abuses on uh, in olympic construction that was a knowable thing the same thing for qatar we know we knew that the construction sector um, is already a problem so you award a mega sporting event you exacerbate whatever the problems are human rights watch did a report on um, uh, police killings in brazil before Brazil was awarded the Games. Sadly, in the last week we have brought out another report which talks about the escalation in extrajudicial killings. Uh, We have a video on our website that makes for very hard watching. We interview the police themselves. Uh, One of the promises of the Brazil Games was give us the Olympics and we will improve security. Well, police killings makes everyone less secure. So, I think there is, we've reached the moment where this, um, the problem has been that the co- governments who bid to host are not then held to their pledges. So, there shouldn't be a double standard for human rights abusers where they get away. I mean, it's playground rules. You have to abide by the rules or you don't get to host. And I think we've alluded to this sort of thermonuclear. Uh, option but if you're not if you're not prepared to uphold the standards of the Olympic Charter if you're not prepared to uphold the UN guiding principles on human rights if you're not prepared to identify risks at the beginning monitor them through the process and remediate them when they happen then you then you really have no business hosting a mega sporting event
8: Can I just add quickly please give You know people talk about maybe we should move the rio games because of the water issues construction and so on but i also think there should be talk about moving games that have already been awarded to countries i'm not talking about the ones coming up in brazil but for the human rights situation or if a country invades another country like russia has with ukraine Um, i I think there, there needs to be a readiness to move the games should a host government after being awarded these games not live up to human rights issues, um, or, or respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity.
3: I mean, the sad reality is in most of these instances, it wasn't if the record was not clear at the time, but as you Absolutely. said, there were these false promises. It's if only you give it to worse. us A little bit, yeah. Um, let me ask, before you open it up, just a quick question. Um, Part of the reason that there's corruption is because there's so much money involved. N- we haven't touched on the role of corporate sponsors. Can you guys, I mean, we've got, uh, I know on, on this end, uh, Nike and McDonald's and Visa and others who proudly, I, I went to the, the 1996 games in Atlanta, the Coca-Cola Olympics. It was unbelievable. Uh, I'm sure it was illegal to buy Pepsi uh, you know, in the city during the games. Um, what role um, does the corporate interest play here? And is there anything that can be done to make them more accountable uh, as part of this process we're talking about? Good, why don't we're, it go ahead. Yeah,
6: I'd be happy to talk about this. Um, Human Rights Watch spent about a decade communicating these abuses and putting you know, book-length reports um, on the table in front of corporate sponsors. And I think um, we recognize that there's a fundamental problem, and that is that these companies are underwriting these mega-sporting events. Yeah. Um, so they're literally paying for them, but it's also the goose that lays the golden eggs. True. If you pay, as NBC did, $775 million for the right to broadcast the Sochi Olympics, you're going to be necessarily less interested in reporting on abuses, um, but I think you know, especially for broadcasters who depend on press freedom, yeah. v- for the media rights, that's obvi- it should be a very fundamental thing. I would remind people that Beijing won the right to host the 2022 Olympics, so we're going to be circling, the, winter, the be, Olympics, the yeah, Winter yeah, Olympics. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be circling back to, to these problems um, as the Chinese government is in the worst crackdown since the 19. 19- Period. Yes. So I think that um, we have reached, as Virginia alluded to, though, an interesting moment of, uh, of uh, possible change. And uh, around. I think the pressures created both by the corruption scandal and the um, uh, documented abuses over the last decade have created a climate where there's a willingness and an understanding that um, Uh, No corporate sponsor wants wants a brand tied to ugly human rights abuses. Uh, Fans don't want to sit in stadiums that that migrant workers died to build. So we've reached a moment where there's a recognition it's it's time for reform. And uh, there is a uh, a new mega sporting event center, as Virginia alluded to, chaired by Mary Robinson, that involves the corporate sponsors. Uh, Coca-Cola, Adidas, and others have taken the lead in this. I think um, it's it's uh, too early to cheer, but it, there is a role. Uh, I think they have recognized that this is not a sustainable situation going forward, Um, but it really is the responsibility of the sponsors since they are literally paying for the event. They don't want their brands tied to ugly discrimination against women or LGBT people. They don't, you know, they they have a real interest in seeing that the sports, these mega sports events, live up to the vision and the possibility that they're a force for good because that's certainly what their brand marketing is telling the world.
4: You know, I, I agree with, with all of that, of course. Uh, I, I would just add that um, there's, a, uh, there's a, a continuum of, of actors in, in this kind of a, a human rights crisis around these sports events. You have the sponsors. You have the, the, the sports organization, you have the host country, and then you have the fans and the participating teams. Ultimately, the host country it, it bears primary responsibility for the human rights violations that are occurring within the country. But that does not let uh, FIFA off the hook, or the sports, or whichever the sports organization is, off the hook, or their sponsors off the hook, because they ought to be doing the due diligence necessary. Uh, you know, and, and as Minky mentioned, the huge flow of cash creates these perverse incentives to sweep everything under the rug. By all the parties involved, so you know there's a, a huge vacuum there that needs to be filled with a public critique, public pressure, and recognition by the managers of these brands that their brands are going to take a hit if they're not standing on the right side of basic ethics and human rights. Right.
3: Pedro.
7: Yeah, uh, I, th- I think there was, I mean, already some uh, some uh, sponsors that looking to corruption inside fifa or inside the organizations but this is, this goes much beyond right it's it's not a, this is a part of the problem i think it's the smallest part right i think what we're talking is again they we we don't have yet made clear to the public what is the impact of those games in uh uh in local democracies right in, in inside the how for, i mean again one, one other example that that's the kind of thing the state of Rio is completely bankrupt now. There's no money now to, to pay the, the civil servants. There's no money to pay hospitals, there's no money. And it was exactly because they took this money and there was all kind mm. of legal uh, 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 legal ways they found to, to, to channel the money all to build the infrastructure for the games that would disappear or be useless the day after. And this has been done with the support of those private sponsors that are just, you know, attached. Mm-hmm. We should make that more, th- this is not yet completely uh, common sense, right? This is, we talk about the corruption inside the organization, this is something they are, I would say, concerned, but the kind of impact on what this uh, uh, this event do on, on the, the the democracies, uh, I think this is something that is, we, we should do, as a society, we should do much more a war to to, make it uh,
3: common sense. Great. David, and then uh, please start thinking about your questions. Uh, Just
8: quickly, I mean, I think back to 2000, the lead up to the 2014 Sochi Olympics after uh, Russia had enacted the anti-homosexual propaganda legislation. And there was a strong push on the international corporate community not to be associated with that kind Mm -hmm. of government and that kind of legislation. Um, So there There are reputational issues here that are very important. There are issues of funding. Uh, These uh, entities do provide support to these games. There is one other side to it I would just mention, and that is the host governments oftentimes shake down companies in their own countries. Some of these companies I don't have a lot of sympathy for because they built up based on corruption and connections. Um, But it reinforces this vicious cycle where The host government can decide to go to a Russian company and say you're going to help support the Sochi Olympics whether you like it or not, and they don't have a choice. So it it, it feeds into the the whole corrupt element of these games. um, And I think more transparency on that would be helpful too.
3: Thank you, David. Okay. please, let's start over here.
8: Hi, good morning. My name is Stefan Grober with Euronews, European television.
9: it's hard um, not to see a certain trend here if we look at the Olympics, for instance. Um, Brazil, with all the corruption problems, uh, Qatar, um, Olympics and, and World Cup, Qatar, Russia, uh,
8: Russia again, uh, China, China in 2022. There was no, the,
9: the, the second city was Almaty, if you remember. Uh, there were several European federations that Secretly and uh, um, uh, discreetly asked some German cities to step in, and they all refused. There was a referendum in Hamburg, Germany, mm-hmm. with the same outcome in, in Boston. So my, my sarca- sarcastic question is,
8: have we reached a point where the Olympics have become um, incompatible with democratic values? Good.
3: Uh,
8: go
6: ahead. No,
8: go, go ahead, I, I haven't watched the Olympics since the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, <laughs> okay. so um, although given the state of Russia these days, I might have renewed interest um,
5: <laughs>
8: it, 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 they are driven in part by interest, by viewers, and I don't see how you change that. I think there there's always going to be interest to watch them. Um, but uh, I think the point that was made about... Not requiring host governments to build all these fancy stadia and, and, and other things to host these events is one way to look at it. Um, but um, the, another way is for people to stop watching, um, particularly if they are taking place in countries with gross human rights abuses and massive corruption. That is probably a pipe dream. But um, you know I'll start a one-man movement and uh, people can join. Yeah,
6: uh, it, but I, I also think that would be a bad outcome. I mean, I you know I'm a sports fan. I was glued to Wimbledon last week, and I think for uh, you know a lot of us are in the room today because we know the the inspiration and the uplifting power of sports. I, I wanted to say for a minute, um, you know, I work a lot on the area of discrimination against women and girls in sports, but it also can be I, we've. Ha- been fortunate to work with Olympians and um, Muslim women athletes who will tell you that you know breaking these barriers and getting over the hurdles to, to take part in sport has changed their lives. It's improved health, education opportunities, um, professional development. In so much of the world, sport is a gateway to that. So I don't think we want to, I think the strategy and the strategy that the NGO community is embracing, sponsors, um, sports federations, increasingly the IOC, which is engaged in this conversation with Human Rights Watch Amnesty and others, um, is that that's, that's the bad option. The good option is to actually have sport and sports federations live up to the aspirations that they claim to stand for, and that that language in the Olympic Charter—that sport is a human right—but um, I—but I, I do want to say there are, um, you know, a lot of counterexamples. We're talking about mega sporting events, but even if you take it to sort of a small level, I'm uh, Human Rights Watch has done a lot of work since 2012 when Iranian women were banned from playing, mm-hmm. from attending. Stadiums to watch volleyball. I mean, even watching volleyball in Iran in Tehran is uh, is uh, is banned. And for obviously, Human Rights Watch works on the full the full spectrum of human rights and women's rights abuses in the country. But Iranian women have said, "Listen, it's important to us that that we be able to access this public space. It's important to us we be able to cheer our own national team." I, I'm gonna uh, if. If you pardon me, I'd like to give an example. The um, Iranian women uh, have been repeatedly promised by the International Volleyball Federation, both at the beach volleyball tournament in February. Iran hosted its first ever beach volleyball tournament. You may not have followed this. Um, But also last week, just this last week, um, Iran hosted a uh, World League match, that's international rules, the International Volleyball Federation, it's like FIFA for volleyball. Um, they are extremely powerful, they control the sport, it's, it's uh, volleyball appeals to hardliners and reformists alike, everyone wants to cheer the team, but after being promised that women could buy tickets online, they were not able to. So I think one of the things that we should all be able to agree on is that um, not just at the IOC level and not just at the FIFA level, but also that straight down through these other bodies that have immense power and money and within their sports, there's an opportunity for sport to Move the ball down the field in uh, women's rights in Iran. Uh, it, this would, you know, this is just the type of small thing that can make a big difference in uh, women's rights. And I would say, sadly, instead of uh, defending, you know, the FIVB wants to build volleyball in the country, but they shouldn't do it excluding fifty percent of the population, and they shouldn't do it by throwing women under the bus. Okay.
3: Pedro, and Pedro, let me ask you to make your comments uh, short so you can get yeah. to a couple of questions. Yeah. Sure, sure.
4: I mean, I, I just say that I, ideally, we get to a, a place where uh, sporting events that are held are held uh, with respect to the interests and rights of the communities. Uh, that will be involved in the sporting event being held. Maybe in some cases that means the community says no. Maybe in other cases that means that the community's uh, rights are respected, including those in the community who will be involved with building the infrastructure for the event. Um, And in this particular question about repressive versus non-repressive governments, it is important to note that that you know many repressive governments use this as a way of of sort of recycling the reputation you know Bahrain is a really good example which sure. David mentioned right you know that they started having the annual F1 uh, race in Manama in Bahrain and you know and at one point in time, I believe they even banned protests around the uh, around the F1, and now they've just outlawed their major opposition party, uh, obafak you know, the the major opposition party to uh, to the monarchy. So uh, these types of things shouldn't be allowed to play out over and over and over again. Uh, and instead, you know, the, the international sporting events should rise to the ideal for which you know they were originally started, you know, decades, centuries,
3: even millennia ago. Okay, Pedro, go ahead quickly if you can.
7: No, I agree with uh, most of uh, what <clears throat> you said. I think it's much more about uh, creating the awareness of public about what happened, so that we can pressure sponsors, organizers, all that. Than just uh, and and again, respect. And this is part of people's life. I think of, uh, just saying we don't want to have those games, we don't want to have this moment. This is this would affect <laughs> a, 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 a part of our culture. I would say that I think we should, in a way, respect and say. We should have a positive. This should bring us a positive influence and not a negative. And, and I don't think the answer is just uh, 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 small and specific boycotts. But I, I agree that the, the point getting people uh, 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 to, to be aware of, of, of the scale of what's happening. Right?
3: OK, let me take I've got three. OK, I had um, Robert Ruby I have this woman here. And then Mary will take a cluster of three. And then I've got, OK.
8: This is Robert Ruby of uh, Freedom House. Um, Several of you have said that it's important that uh, the community um, uh, over time move these sports so that they follow the rules, they follow the rule book. The catch is the rules are not set by Secretary Bennett, they're not set by the UN, they're not set by any of your organizations, they're set by the FIA or FIFA or IOC I know Jean Tote of the FIA would say, as he's done many times, oh, this is all about sport. It's really not about politics. Uh-huh. His counterparts at FIFA and the IOC would say the same. How do, move, how, how do you move them? How do you move these federations, which are, if not democracies, they have a plurality of interests themselves? Thank you.
0: Here, please.
5: Hello, my name is Gabrielle Saberwal. I'm with the International Fair Play Committee. A couple of comments. Um, First of all, it's very interesting what you're all saying, but I'm sad that you don't have anybody on your panel that represents the positive aspect of sports. You've given examples of Beijing, of Sochi, but in between those, there's many positive examples and no one has mentioned that about what sport does. Another thing, I was in Beijing during the Games. I was there a year before the Games and after in 2015. The changes that took place during the Olympic Games in Beijing were incredible with the people. The first week, none of the Chinese were talking to us. They were very stoic. But by the second week, the Westerners were not the evil Westerners that the Chinese were raised to believe us believe them to be. And then the final question I wanted, I was a volunteer in 1984. First of all, when you had mentioned traffic in Boston, there was no traffic in LA during the games. (laughs) The other thing was that LA is bidding again. And um, I wanted to say, what is your opinion about um, that The construction, it's going to be a privately funded games with hardly any construction? You had mentioned in China that some people were killed. Just FYI, during the building of the San Francisco-Oakland Bridge, 28 people were killed. I think that's more than people were killed in the stadium. So I'd like to hear some positive aspects. Okay,
3: and And Mary, and then we'll take another batch.
5: Thank you, Mary Maris from Freedom
2: House. My question is similar to Robert's, is that how do you get these host countries to behave and respect human rights when the governing bodies themselves um, are corrupt?
3: Okay, good, why don't we start? Uh, Pedro, why don't we start with you?
7: No, I'd like to agree with uh, the question about the positive influence of sports, right? I think, I I just remember a case uh, on the Beijing Olympics when uh, the first medal won by by Brazil in that Olympics uh, were uh, by women in judo. And judo was forbidden as any fight sports uh, in Brazil for women till the 80s. So the point that we could see 20 years after a woman, you know, uh, after uh, the ban of the prohibition won a medal, uh, uh, I don't know, but this was so important to debate. Women's rights in Brazil, and and to bring that discussion. Uh, that of course we have to recognize the positive influence of of, of sports, uh, and that's why I think this is not about just banning the events or or even boycotting them. But uh, the point is, the 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 way uh, um, um, it is structured now, where is no there is no negative uh, uh, impact for governments to just say let's stop everything, let's. Channel all the resources. Let's close the, uh, 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 our eyes on, on a human rights event, There's no, and, and just because we have to do that, right? And, and that's the point that I think we should uh, uh, start uh, thinking about, and 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 putting uh, states uh, uh, to do pressure in this very powerful uh, uh, organizations, which are uh, the Olympics organization and uh, the the Olympics committee and the, and FIFA, in terms of. How can we use those organizations to generate uh, positive uh, uh, influence in in the countries?
6: Good, and we'll work our way down. Yeah, I, I want to answer both the questions of how do you move these powerful international sports federations, um, and also the the question of, of the positive dimension of sport with the with one answer. And that is to say, I I didn't mention it, but Human Rights Watch has done a lot of work. For example, around the 2012 Olympics, we did a report called Steps of the Devil um, on the denial of the right to play sport for Saudi women and girls. And for example, Saudi Arabia alone in the world bans uh, for sport in state schools. It's the only country that does that. It has, that means that, you know, there are 13 million women in Saudi Arabia, 4 million of them are girls. So, Every, every Olympics that we don't get a reform of introducing physical education into state schools, another generation of girls is lost in Saudi Arabia. And by lost, I mean very high um, rates of heart disease, diabetes, uh, preventable mm. health and psychological problems that, that being able to play sports would address. Um, so it's really, we're talking about things that are basic human rights, but also base, the basic right to health. Um, I, and I would say, the, the ball has been moved down the field. There is a new uh, president of the IOC, Thomas Bach. Um, uh, when the anti-gay law was passed in June of 2014, with the, in June of 2013 with the Sochi Olympics on the horizon, um, you know, Human Rights Watch had written to them to say, you could stop this law. It would have been a phone call from Lausanne to Moscow to stop the ugly anti-gay law from being passed. That was a missed opportunity, but after the Sochi Olympics, I think uh, responding to the crisis, um, uh, Bach put in place changes to the host city contract itself to say that that anti-gay discrimination is not allowed for host countries. So. I I think we wouldn't. We probably wouldn't have a replay of that. The same thing for discrimination against women and girls. It is banned by the Olympic Charter. Uh, government. You know, we've talked a lot about the role of governments. Governments have things that they want out of mega sporting events. The Saudi government approached Bach and the IOC in January of 2015 with a proposal, and the proposal was that. Uh, Saudi Arabia would like to host the Olympics. They have, they have something that they want. They want to stand on the world stage and host the Olympics, but they propose to host the Olympics together with Bahrain, um, and the women would compete in Bahrain and the men would compete in Saudi Arabia. That is a this is a, a true statement. It, it obviously would be a step back for world sport if a sex-segregated Olympics were green lighted. So it's very much to the credit of the IOC that they swatted this idea down and they said, no, that's a violation of the host city contracts, the new reforms that have just been passed. So I think, um, I, I hope that we're at a moment where the um, top sports bodies are prepared to take a more muscular approach in enforcing the Olympic Charter and using the immense power that they have to advance women's rights to health in Saudi Arabia, this isn't at the elite level. But you'll never have elite Olympians in Saudi Arabia or other countries if you don't have physical education for millions of girls in state schools.
3: And
4: just build, building off uh, Mindy's point, um, you know, f- first in the context of the governing bodies, there's certainly probably significant steps that the various governing bodies can take to, to open up their decision-making processes. But we've seen, you know, especially in the context of FIFA, that where there's public criticism, where the NGO community is stepping up with resources and reporting, where elected officials are holding hearings and raising tough questions, that the governing bodies uh, do start responding. Because everyone's in the business of brand management. And a governing body that doesn't respond adequately to a chorus of public criticism is going to be a governing body that doesn't have sponsors funding it, because they themselves don't want to be tarnished by the, the, by the criticism. So at, at a very you know, 20,000 foot level, um, to the extent that all of us are asking these tough questions in pointed, directed, and focused ways, it builds a political climate in which uh, all the parties within that political climate uh, move towards the, their best intentions and, and the best possible outcomes. Um, but that also means sustained pressure. It means sustained hard work to make sure that when the spotlight moves to a new city or a new country that, you know, that the, the old games don't come back up. Um, and, and that's, that's part of all of our work, it's part of the Atlantic Council's work, it's part of, you know, the human rights community's work to, to make sure that that continues to happen.
8: David? Um, to Mary's question, I, I think we have to ask why do authoritarian regimes want to host these games? And it is for prestige, it's for legitimacy, True. it's for recycling ill-gotten gains, um, but it usually isn't for the benefit of the average citizen in their countries. Um, And so, uh, I I don't think the games are a vehicle to change these kinds of regimes. Um, I think think the pressure to change has to come both from within uh, these societies, but also externally. Um, And I don't think there's enough of that. The games can play a minor role in that. Um, On on your point about the positive aspects, um, I was being a little flippant about the Olympics. I just lost interest in watching them. Understand the importance of them. Um, I am a huge sports fan. I'm from Boston. I'm huge Red Sox and Patriots fan, as John knows. Okay, that's compared to those Yankees and Mets. So I've played, I've coached, I've refereed, I've umpired. I completely understand the values and benefits of sports. Um, We're probably going to have to disagree on the Beijing Olympics. Um, I think the impact of the Beijing Olympics overall on the country was extremely negative and it did not benefit people who were critics of the government at the time uh, a number of whom were thrown in jail or displaced or whatever other consequences they faced. Um, but if if sports can help people in these kinds of countries um, I don't think there's a lot of track record of that um, then I'm all for it I'm not anti-sport by any means Um, but uh, I think we have to understand Getting back to Mary's question, why these governments are hosting them in the first place.
3: Okay, I've got three and one, two and three. Okay, and then we're going to have to wrap this up.
2: Thank you very much for an excellent panel. My name is Martina Vandenberg. I'm from the Human Trafficking Pro Bono Legal Center. And I want to pick up on Minky's point about missed opportunities. Because among a field of really bad actors, in terms of the hosts, I think Qatar really wins, uh, to make a bad pun, a gold medal for, for really horrendous human rights Ooh. abuses on the ground. And so, Sanjeev, I was very interested to hear you say that you are happy that Qatar was left on the Tier 2 watch list in the trafficking report that Secretary Kerry just released. Because as you know, Qatar had to get a waiver in order not to drop down to Tier 3. And I'm wondering if the U.S. government just missed an opportunity to really put Qatar on Tier Three, where it belongs. And I'm wondering whether we should start a campaign now to put the country on Tier Three. But I, but more specifically, what levers are there now that we have a Tier Two watch list again with a waiver? What are the what are the mechanisms that we can use as leverage to to really get the kind of um, satisfaction in ending the abuses that I think we all hope to see.
3: Thank you. Sure. Okay, Martina. And back. So hand,
9: yeah. Hi, my name is Martin, uh, and I come from SAIS. Um, so I have a very brief comment, firstly, um, I, with the fear of sounding like absolutist, like I understand that actually, like there is no country in the world that it doesn't abuse human rights. Um, but at the same time you know Freedom House has issued reports saying you know like um, fred- the freedom of the press has been significantly deteriorating in most of the countries so I'm just wondering if actually how many countries actually in the world and how many regions in the world can actually host these Olympics and or, or big, you know, um, sport events, you know, most of the countries in, um, uh, you know, say um, many countries in Latin America, most of the countries in Africa, even the increasingly the increasing number of countries in Europe can actually, I think, host these, you know, events with, you know, with, with them being kind of, with them seeming legitimate. And that's kind of a comment. Um, my second question, my, well, my first question, my only question is about, when when the, when Russia hosted the Olympics, we saw, and when they kind of introduced this um, homosexuality propaganda law, we saw a lot of international outrage, um, as you um, uh, mentioned, and um, and so and so what happened is I. Th- my perception is that that encouraged a lot of dissidents in Russia to actually go and be more vocal um, uh, opposition to to what's going on and you know kind of to, to, to protest these um, changes. But what happened afterwards, when the Olympic Games were over, is that this kind of international outrage suddenly kind of dissipated, um, not from Human Rights Watch, not from House but from the general population, and that kind of exposed these dissidents more. And if anything, they probably felt betrayed. So my question is, how do we actually kind of make this opposition, make this more sustainable rather than, you know, just focus while the Olympic Games or the big events are there and then just kind of disappoint or betray um, the local dissidents or human rights fighters? Thank you. Okay, thank you. And microphone right here.
10: Hi. I'm Lindsay Gibbs. I'm the sports reporter at Think Progress. Um, one of my questions is kind of how the athletes fit into all of this. Uh, I think we've seen, especially over the last couple of weeks, with everything going on in our country, some high-profile athletes have really spoken up. Uh, Serena Williams spoke out against uh, you know, police brutality after, right after her Olympic win, which was very powerful. But I always feel for athletes, especially for the Olympics, because this the, lots of them are so young. This, this this opportunity only comes around once every four years. Most of them are in sports that don't get any attention, the other, the other three three. years, you know, not sports like tennis or something like that, where there are lots of spotlights, but obviously athletes are a huge part of this and, and can really have a very powerful voice and have in past Olympics. So I'm wondering what your thought and what kind of your wishes would be for athletes speaking out against these human rights violations. Um, another thing is that there's also the IOC is hosting a a refugee team this year, which is, um, pretty significant um, and and there's some pretty powerful stories being shown, you know, it, it's a good opportunity to shine stories on a lot of these stories for refugees and what impact that might have. And sorry, just one more thing. Every I'd like to get your opinion on every, every time this is brought up, there's always this one solution kind of that is maybe we pick four spots for permanent spots to host the Olympics throughout the world and they just rotate throughout those areas of the world every every few years or they're, they're just permanent hosts for these games so that these facilities are built and then they can keep being reused. Is that something you, you think could pot- potentially be a solution?
3: Great, okay, let me go in reverse order from, uh, so let me start with David uh, and this will also be your last crack at any other things you wanna add.
8: Oh, sure, just quickly, um, your, your question about how to make this more sustainable, this, the campaigns have to be about much more than the games. Uh, they have to be about what's happening inside the countries, mm-hmm. and that requires uh, a more serious effort on human rights, democracy, rule of law, anti-corruption writ large, um, not just when it comes time to a country's hosting of the games. And uh, you're right, Freedom House has documented 10 years of decline in freedom around the world. It hasn't been precipitous decline, but decline. And, um, but there are countries, if they want to, who could host these. There's plenty. I mean, Freedom House's numbers are, what, 45 free countries, about the same, um, on part, uh, more than part 75 on partly free, I think. Um, and that Freedom House and other organizations for the Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, and others could put together a list of countries. But again, it has to be a choice. It has to be the uh, decision of these countries to want to host them. Um, on athletes, yeah, athletes often are, I think, the victims in a lot of this. Um, either uh, they, they get used and exploited by the athletic associations that they're in, or um, they, they become targets of, of uh, criticism while you're participating in these games. I, uh, that, I think, is directed at the wrong uh, target. Um, it, I would favor athletes speaking out if they so choose, if they're moved to do so. But I also think that there are restrictions imposed, and, and others might know this better, by some of the uh, sponsoring organizations against athletes either wearing something on their uniforms, it runs against the, the uh, code that they're, they've signed up to. Um, but but I think uh, having celebrities, athletes, others speak out on these issues is all for the better.
3: Okay. Uh, Pedro?
7: Yeah. You know, so I think this, uh, uh, I, I agree with the, the first comment that was made in terms of, I think it's really hard to, to think of just, you know, let's have a picture of, of uh, the states and decide what states can host or can't host. And I have to say, the way that the, the, these events are done, I think it's 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 uh, the symptom that Boston refused. I think it's exactly, it's expressed. Well, Boston is not an adequate city to this kind of game because the, the adequate countries and, and cities for are exactly, maybe Russia and Qatar, exactly because this is what it represents today, right? So the, the I think the point is we should uh, uh, inverse the logic and think, what what what's our proposal for what a, a, a set of criteria of that uh, as was said can be monitored year by year in terms of, of an evolution should be the criteria for a game what is how can we have this energy that is of course it's it's a good energy to have people together around uh, something that you know inspire people but how can we have this with uh, the 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 criteria that are aligned with human rights and sustainability. I think for me that's the agenda, right? Much more than using that as you know. Let's let's see the picture of states in the world and decide where uh, 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 where the Syria can receive that. Because again, if receive that is receive this kind of logic that's behind that, no democratic country, I think, would uh, would be appropriate to to receive uh, those events. And I think so. One of the thing that I think we should start thinking is a proposal of what a, a sustainable and human rights-friendly uh, uh, or human rights uh, or, or to improve human rights uh, mega event structure would be, and I think that's that's civil society's job. I think we should do that uh, 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 in addition to uh, denounce and speak about the, the abuses that are happening now.
3: All right, Sanjeev, and then Miki. Sure. sure.
4: So first, your specific question about the, the trafficking person's report. Just to be clear, my, my use of the adjective or uh, happy uh, should not be misconstrued to be an endorsement of Qatar's labor violations. I'm talking specifically about, I'm talking specifically about uh, concerns that we had that Qatar uh, might be moved off the watch list into sort of tier two oh. separate from the watch list. But, but I agree with your broader point. Much more needs to be done. And, and you've sort of you know, given me an opportunity to, to back into something that I wanted to raise, which is that you know, we've talked about a, a number of countries, Qatar, Bahrain, uh, Russia, China. Some are in competitive or adversarial relationships with the US government. Some are allies of the US government, right? Bahrain in particular, Qatar in, in many ways. Uh, and you know, a, a, as David had previously uh, mentioned, you know, from referencing his time in government, there are times when the US government ch- could do more, should do more. He was talking that in the context of China, I believe in Beijing. I, you know, I will say that a lot of times it's easier to get tough statements uh, from the U.S. government with regards to its political adversaries. Even when, even when strong advocates within the State Department, at the Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor Bureau, or, uh, or other uh, voices within the diplomatic community are raising these issues internally, the, the the final outcome, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's Bahrain, whether it's Qatar, might be a, lo- a lot softer than it should be if one is prioritizing the overall message uh, of human rights and human rights accountability. And and lastly, to that point, when an ally of the United States sees that it can do these things, and the fundamental relationship with the most powerful military uh, in the world, the most powerful country in the world, the most powerful economy in the world, the United States, uh, is unaltered, then you have outcomes like what we're seeing right now in Bahrain, where the Bahraini monarchy has outlawed its opposition. It's now illegal to be part of the, the opposition party that the US government had for so long encouraged to engage in dialogue with the Bahraini monarchy. That same Bahraini monarchy that has had these you know, shiny, glamorous F1 uh, Formula One racing events has now said, "You're not. forget about dialogue, it's illegal for you to exist. Miki?
6: Um, so just to uh, begin with, a, or to, to, to end with, where we have been and where we'd like to go. And, and I would also like to address Robert's questions about what are the standards, because there are standards where this is nothing new. Um, you know, the the sort of the trend, the trend line that we've discussed today is one that should, wear, it should worry governments, it should worry international federations, it should worry fans, and it should worry civil society and non-governmental organizations. And that trend is one where uh, repressive governments use mega sporting events to lock up critics, whitewash their reputation, and to pass new repressive laws. So that's, that is a trend that we need to draw a line, a, a line in the sand over, um, to use a beach volleyball metaphor. The, um, I, and I think the human rights standards are very clear. It's the UN guiding principles on uh, uh, human rights that were unanimously agreed. Um, Human Rights Council, corporations have signed on to this, so we're not talking about Remaking anything, and it's just applying these in a meaningful way. And what do we mean by meaningful? You know, the situation in Qatar, they keep passing laws and they keep setting up committees. There are multiple layers between the government of Qatar, um, and I was with Mustafa in uh, uh, Qatar in May. There is the government, there's a supreme committee which is delivering the World Cup, and then there's a the local organizing committee, and then there's FIFA. So and no one has accountability and all of these rules are meaningless unless they're enforced. So what we're talking about is very simply a rules-based approach, UN guiding principles, non-discrimination, and using sport as a force for good as the rhetoric of these sports federations has it. Um, To the question of athletes, I think not every athlete wants to be an advocate for human rights or women's rights. Um, And many of them just want to win gold. And that is great. We want to cheer them as they do that. But there are also a lot of athletes or former athletes who are prepared to speak yeah. in very personal terms about how sport has um, made a tremendous difference in their lives and their health, um, and they don't have to be Olympians. These are these are these are women and boys and girls who have um, uh, gone to law school, who have started a career, who have founded a business around hit jobs for women in Muslim countries who who want to compete. So I think there there are so many inspirational stories that we should we should really embrace the best of what sports can offer and use it in a meaningful way to implement a rules-based approach, draw a line under repressive governments hosting and abusing the right to host. Um, and uh, you know, I think the Rio Olympics are a wonderful opportunity to have this discussion. The real moment for reform is going to come right after the Olympics when you know, human Rights Watch would like to ask for everyone's help in getting human rights risk assessments in place, in getting political leadership in getting reforms, and actually telling the federations that the moment has come for sport to um, uh, be consistent with human rights and not at odds with it.
3: I like the idea of something like a human rights impact statement uh, or it, it, That's a good it, idea.
6: There's the internet.
3: All right. um, okay, I know we've got extra innings, so let me just thank the Atlantic Council, let me thank Geisha for helping us together, uh, and Virginia Bennett uh, from the State Department, and our panelists and all of you. Thank you, this was great. Yeah.